0: Kick the Jukebox
1: is so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the Jukebox, kicking
0: a rhyme, talking about music all the time. Oh, yeah! Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kick the Jukebox. I'm Louie Perlman. And I'm Kyle
1: Gordon.
0: Ooh, that was good. That sounded like morning radio DJ. That's, nice. Yeah, you like that? Like, you know, like, all the hits, like that yeah, kind of guy. that works.
2: In, in In the back of my head, I was like, last minute, I was like, do a Joey Ramone, and it just came out as morning radio DJ. But
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, not a great Joey Ramone. Uh, yeah, Joey Ramone's so kind of low and slurry. Yeah. That's better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, we did a whole... We guessed it on a whole podcast where we played the. Oh Ramones. yeah,
2: we did. We yes. improvised as uh, Dee Dee and Joey, right? Didn't uh we?
0: Johnny, 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 Ramone. and jo- yeah, yeah, yes. Johnny and Dee Dee. Yes, disgusting Johnny Ramones. <laughs> <laughs> this is Kick the Jukebox. This is your favorite musicology podcast where we deep dive into an album of the week. Our focus is almost exclusively on. 20th century music. It's also an exploration of our friendship. You can please, if you enjoy what you're hearing, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Be much appreciated. Kyle, how you doing? You doing okay? Doing great. Just got
2: back from my parents. We went and visited them. My my dad had a few bourbons and we had Chinese food and he said the most profound thing I've ever heard. (laughs) We were having Chinese food in Uh, someone was like oh can you pass dad the egg roll on a platter and totally to himself he just goes my life's an egg roll on a platter (laughs) whoa i have no no one no one had any idea what he was talking about but it was i think it's just it was one of the most profound things i've ever heard in my life that's that's amazing oh my gosh
0: (laughs) <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, our album of the week just because i didn't mention it before is blondie's 1978 release plastic letters yeah yeah which is a super super fun album yeah and i'm excited to get into it yesterday i ended up going to the park with my roommate and we listened to the beach boys all day Ooh, so nice. i'm in a great mood yeah we just
2: drove back from the city and we were listening to i made everyone listen to this album front to back and it
0: was fun <laughs> oh, awesome. Nice. So yeah, so let's get into it here. So that's cool. What did your, you know, you were with your girlfriend and your brother, right? Yeah. Did they like the album? Do you like the album? This is a newer album for you. I know this was my suggestion. How did you feel about this one? Yeah, I really liked it. Cool. Um, and yeah, the only, uh,
2: yeah, I, I really, yeah, I'd really only listened to, in terms of like albums front to back, I listened to the debut and parallel lines I have on vinyl. So I've listened to that like a lot and that's the album. I mean, that's, you know, parallel yeah. lines. So yeah, I hadn't heard this album and I actually hadn't heard any of the, anything on it, even like the singles or anything. Oh, awesome. So I really liked it. Yeah. Um, I think definitely compared to parallel lines, I think it's much closer to the first album than it is the second album, but I'd like to hear what you think about that. But yeah, I I really liked it. And everyone in the car seemed to be bopping along. You know, it's a (laughs) lot of like fun, dancey, like, you know, in the same way that, you know, a lot of great 70s, quote unquote, punk or new wave, you know, it's it's clearly drawn from a lot of like 60s bubblegum and 60s garage rock and just 60s girl group stuff, just like, you know, a lot of their contemporaries, they were all listening to and had fun with that same stuff. So definitely hearing a lot of that on this album was really fun.
0: Cool. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and comparing it to Parallel Lines, I think is really the thing to do. And mm. when we wanted to start, when we wanted to get into Blondie on this podcast, I specifically didn't want to cover Parallel Lines. Right. Because it was their big breakout success album. And some other podcasts have actually done a really excellent job dissecting Parallel Lines. And this album doesn't get a lot of love. This one yeah. is considered like a sophomore slump album. Huh. Yeah. This is Blondie's second record and came out in February of 1978. And then Parallel Lines ended up being released pretty shortly after, like it came out at the end of 78 Parallel Same Lines. year. Yeah. Yeah. So in the same year, but it shows a remarkable sort of mental switch for the band and partially that does have to do with the fact that this album wasn't hugely successful,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but it also has to do with the fact that Parallel Lines was released under a new record label. It was, uh, it was released under EMI, and this one was released under Chrysalis. And something interesting about Blondie's relationship with Chrysalis Records is that Chrysalis just didn't really seem to know what to do with them. Uh-huh. Yeah, they were like somewhat successful in in Europe and specifically in England, at this time, as we'll get into, but they hadn't hit in the United States, and they weren't really considered a huge band. In the States, they were considered sort of an underground success. Uh And then in in Europe, they were really just beginning to hit the charts, which we'll get into. And, And their music was sort of known to be that they were somewhat nostalgic, that they were supposed to be kind of like a girl group's, you know, 60s throwback. And the first album definitely exemplifies that and then I think that this one, which is their second album, I think that it actually like has some of that on it, which we'll talk about, which is great, but then it's also them trying to transcend that and trying to transcend it in some pretty interesting ways. I agree, yeah. Yeah. And that's why uh, I want to talk about it. This is my personal favorite Blondie record, and I know, it's kind of a, I know it's kind of an outlier. But for me, this is the one that I always come back to, just because like I really like the songwriting on this record, and I think it yeah. straddles this cool middle ground for me.
2: Yeah, and and I think it kind of explored territory that maybe I hadn't heard as explicitly explored on uh, uh, on this album, uh, uh, more so on this album than on other albums specifically. And maybe you can you know, expound on this. It sounded to me more like big, it's a, it's a term we've used a lot, big, like po- more power pop kind of sound. Uh, mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, I heard like a little bit of like, it, it, it sounded a little bigger than the first record, like maybe a little bit like cheap trick sort of in, I, a little bit in there, um, yes. especially on the first track fan mail. And, uh, mm-hmm. I thought that was just interesting. It, it kind of rooted them among
0: their contemporaries at the time maybe a little bit a little little bit more well you know this is something that's interesting about this whole scene is that blondie came from that cbgb's quote unquote punk scene yep and we can we can start getting into the history of the band a little bit for those who may know a little less about them so they were formed in the early 70s Uh, The guitarist Chris Stein and Debbie Harry were in a band called The Stilettos together. And Debbie shared lead vocals on The Stilettos with two other women, and they were like a real hardcore girl group homage. And then they decided to leave The Stilettos because they wanted to do stuff that was a little more rock-oriented. So they formed a band called Angel and the Snake that had several members of Blondie in it, in and out. Uh, but then Blondie was formed basically when Clem Burke, the drummer of Blondie, and Gary Valentine, the original bassist of Blondie, joined, and they renamed themselves Blondie. This is I think this is really fun. The reason why they called themselves Blondie is because it was what uh, all like the like rude construction workers would yell at Debbie <laughs> Harry when she would yeah. walk by. <laughs> right, right, right. Which is cool. So they decided to call themselves Blondie. And they always were intended to be a group where Debbie Harry was sort of the visual focus. They Uh knew being fronted by like a gorgeously sexy woman, which Debbie Harry always was, would be really great for the band. Uh But they all like shared writing credits in an interesting way. And they certainly have always been like the sum of their parts. Like these guys aren't just a backing band for for Debbie Harry. And on this album, I think what you're hearing with sort of the change in sound is that a lot of the stuff on this record more so than on the last one and more so moving forward was written by their keyboardist Jimmy Destri mm-hmm. which I think is is interesting because like the Destri Yeah, right? Like the Destri stuff on here is there's a lot of complex work going on on this record and especially for a pop record there's a lot of like strange musical shifts and breakdowns that don't happen on other Blondie albums. And mm. I think it kind of puts them pretty squarely in that like New York rock scene, maybe even more so than their first record or their third record or their their mm. albums moving forward. And also with this one, they had just, before they got into the recording studio for this one, they had just finished touring with television mm. out, out in England. And they had kind of a difficult tour with television like. They had a few shows where they, self-admittedly, didn't do very well. They mm-hmm. they felt they kind of had a difficult time because they were opening for Television, and they felt like Television wasn't actually giving them enough stage space. There was mm. there was like some difficulties just with the relationships between the two bands, uh, which is also interesting because Fred Smith, the bassist for Television, was an original member of Blondie who left Blondie to join Television.
2: And how how would you when you when you
0: when they say like not giving them them enough space how do you how do you mean like literally so from what I just I just reopened uh, up making tracks the rise of Blondie which is a book mm-hmm. that Debbie and Chris wrote sort of near the tail end of Blondie's initial success there mm-hmm. you know and they wrote that at the time uh, Tom Verlaine the lead singer of television wanted tons of space on the stage in order to sort of be alone on stage. And then like the other television guys were sort of, you know, to the sides, you right. know, make, make it sort of very airy. That makes uh, sense. <laughs> so they pushed like all of Blondie's gear up to the front. Oh, wow. Yeah. Literally, like
2: literally the physical space. Yeah.
0: yeah, literally the physical space, which happens with bands, you know, right. especially two bands that have to do quick setups. It's just like a actual difficult physical thing that can happen Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and the the press gave Blondie in England some pretty bad reviews when they started their tour and then by the end of their tour television were getting the bad press and Blondie were getting the good press Mm -hmm. and that's when they realized that the British press springs up and takes down rock acts just really for the sake of doing it Right. Yeah, which is, you know, which made them like really pay them no mind. Right. But I do feel like there is a bit of a kind of lightness and sophistication to plastic letters right. that is related to their time with television. I, I think that there's sort of in some of the solos that are in this album, yeah. both the guitar solos and the keyboard solos, they feel kind of television-esque.
2: Mm, yeah that make, yeah, I can hear that. that makes sense.
0: Yeah, and, and then lyrically as well, there's a lot on this album that I think is like pretty highly poetic for Blondie, mm-hmm. which we'll get into. And I don't feel that they ever wrote so obtusely ever again. Mm. Yeah, and, th- and that was coming from all sides. Like you know all of Jimmy Destry's stuff, fan mail is really interesting. It's sort of written from the perspective of an obsessed fan, but it's really mm-hmm. beautiful and pretty heartfelt. And then um, the one about the Bermuda Triangle. Oh, yeah, Bermuda Triangle Blues. Yeah, so there's Bermuda Triangle Blues, which was written 100% by Chris Stein. And is like... Great song. It's very good, and it's about a a flight that has been lost over the Bermuda Triangle and is sort of very strange and somewhat like... There's something kind of weirdly mournful about it. Mm -hmm. And Chris Stein is like super into kind of like pulp sci-fi and weird you know the they're all kind of into the occult blondie which we'll get into a little bit like yeah (laughs) kind of the pop pop occult and it wasn't more clear than it was specifically on this record Mm -hmm. so they came back from touring they got into the studio to start recording this record they were having big disagreements with their bassist Gary Valentine, who did not like rehearsing uh, the song Denny,
1: <laughs> he
0: didn't like it, he, he wasn't into it, and they sort of had an amicable parting of ways, Ooh. where he ended up leaving, which meant that they got Frank and Fanti who was basically a session bassist to fill in. And then he joined the band on tour briefly uh, until he then switched over and became their, one of their guitarists after that. And then joined the band permanently, but he was on bass for this record. Like that was, that was the impermanent aspect. Interesting. Yeah. So like this album is sort of, they're shifting. I think you can hear them shifting on the record and it didn't really hit i think the way that they wanted it to but in retrospect i think that it's like quite an interesting album and and reveals stuff about this band that the other albums do not of their career mm. so yeah that's that's the main reason why i wanted to choose it and i think that we should listen to the first track from it that we're going to cover let's listen to deni
1: yeah which is
0: your choice which is gr- a great song so here's Hell a little yeah. Denny It's an earworm
2: yes <laughs> yes it is that's why that's i mean among other things you know just listening through this uh, you know i took my first listen through the album earlier this week and yeah that song was stuck in my head <laughs> all week and it's great and i know they kind of you know it seems like they sort of embraced and were a bit a bit confused by their early press which kind of called them like a retro band. Yeah. Um, Clearly, like, like a lot, like, like as I said, like a lot of the 70s punk people, a lot of, it was just, they had a real respect for and love for the, like, pre-Beatles rock and pre-Beatles doo-wop and pop, girl group, obviously. And this, this is a perfect encapsulation of it. And it sounds great. And it's really fun. And, you know, to, to mention, this is a cover of a Sort of like a doo-wop song from 1963 by Randy and the Rainbows. No relation yes. to Randy Rainbow, the YouTuber.
0: Um, yes, <laughs> but uh, the, actually, uh, they're—I uh, don't know if you know this—but they're Randy Rainbow's dads, all of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was—he was—he was the spawn of four um, early '60s doo-wop. Uh, guys. Surprise! And that's, yeah. Actually, that kind of would make sense. Sure. But, um, uh, but the, Randy and the Rainbows are 10 times better than Randy Rainbow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, as is Blondie, it's 20 times better. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is like a really fun earworm, silly kind of, but I mean, it really does also kind of build nicely in terms of the instrumentation, and you can hear the, um, as you're mentioning, the keyboards kind of build and be layered on and become you know get pushed to the front as the song goes on and uh you can hear it throughout the album in like a really cool way and that's kind of where i heard the just in terms of the synth sounds and the synth layering kind of some of that like late 70s power pop sound that's
0: kind of think where my ear was going there definitely yeah it is it's a it's a very good cover of uh an old song and it has very sharp production on it Yep. also has uh, a improvised French verse. Yeah, I didn't know it was improvised, obviously, because I don't speak any French, but... (laughs) Yes, yeah, improvised French verse by Debbie Harry, which, like, I think really puts it into that realm of, like, New York rock. (laughs) There's something about that that seems very of the era CBGB's let's improvise a verse in French. Right. Uh, And also, like, speaks to the fact that I do think that this album is like drawn, there's more poetic influences on this album than on other Blondie albums as well. For her to do that in the middle of like a 60s pop song cover is an interesting choice, you know?
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think it's tr- definitely, t- when you think about the like, definitely the New York scene at the time, you had and not to use and, or to use an overused uh, sort of um framework but like this mixing of like high and low cultures right yes so you know kind of taking a song that was considered or a mo- or a style right like 60s bubblegummy kid doo pop music that was kind of considered trashy and sort of superfluous um and then like throwing in you know french lyrics and and pronouncing the name dennis Donnie, yeah, you know? Denny, <laughs> yeah denny. denny
0: which is great yeah, because you know the original song is about Denise.
2: Right. But they do kind of pronounce it in the original, sort of like Donnie. Well, she's dude. saying
0: Denis Denis, which is right. like, you know, a French male pronunciation of Danny. Right. So right. I think blah, they blah, were boom. having fun with that. Yeah. yeah. Ooh la la, Debbie Harry. Yeah. Right, 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 right.
2: <laughs> but I think they were kind of aware of that. Like they, like in that New York attitude, they're like, we're gonna speak in French because French is so fancy. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know but they, they kind of like seemed like kind of winking you know yeah yeah absolutely. i don't think they're actually trying to be hoity-toity you know and then that's the thing too is like you have this culture that's built around recycling um old you know kind of disposable pop mm-hmm. but then it was considered you know it's this downtown arty scene too so the melding and mixing of all of that you kind of hear it on this album and in this song.
0: Yeah, and with with not a pretense of it being particularly serious, Definitely which is not. why I think I think a lot of it works, you know. For sure, right. Why a lot of this album works is that it's not like quite camp. I wouldn't put it into the place sure. of camp, but I also it isn't it isn't an overly pretentious record, you know. And there Definitely. was another, the you know, if we want to go back to the television influence, like television took itself really dead seriously a lot of the time and i think it works really well for television right um but for these guys they sort of understood i think where they fell in the in the aesthetic hierarchy you know and i think that that it works really well here uh, and it's quite sophisticated uh, and speaking of sophisticated we should talk a little bit about the production of this album definitely so yeah so this is produced by richard goderer and guess what, I, Kyle, I looked up his name for this episode to make sure I was pronouncing it right. Aren't you proud of me? Exceptionally proud, because we've talked about him numerous times on this podcast, and <laughs> I've always like had a, like mild um, like uh, panic attack that I'm pronouncing his name wrong. <laughs> but I finally found a YouTube video where he is pronouncing it himself. Oh, <laughs> good good work, good detective work. Thank you so much. Yeah, Richard Garderer. So he is an interesting figure in pop music history. Listeners to, of regular, longtime listeners of this podcast would know him best as being the producer of the Go-Go's Beauty and the Beat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hmm But he got his start as a songwriter, and he wrote My Boyfriend's Back, mm-hmm. Killer. He also wrote I Want Candy. <laughs> yeah among a host of other classic 60s pop songs. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he also is the co-founder with Seymour Stein of Sire Records. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Yeah, I I learned that recently because I'm reading through Seymour Stein's autobiography right now. And you need to remind me, because at the end of this podcast, stay tuned, because I have the hottest goss from Seymour Stein's autobiography.
1: Ooh, interesting
0: I want to share with you at the end of this podcast that you'll love. So yeah. (laughs) So yeah, stay tuned. But he is at the time that he produced this album, he was basically had moved into being a a full-time producer. He produced Blondie's first record. And this one is interesting because according to them, they liked working with him. They thought he was a really good producer, but he was somewhat absent for this album's recording. Hmm. And what they said is that there were two weeks of recording time that they were in the studio where he was on vacation. (laughs) But they're still really happy with the production on this album, so they're not according to the book, they're not mad at him about that. They're actually kind of surprised at, or, or what an excellent producer he is. Yeah, yeah. Is that he really pulled the the album together and, in kind of a, a really profound way and that he was able to do it even not being in the studio the entire time. Yeah, also there's foot stomps on this track and he's one of the foot stomps. So that's kind of fun.
2: <laughs> he put it, yeah, wow. You can really, um, that's, that's going to be his, uh, like when they- when they teach the aliens about Richard Godderer and shoot like his like a uh, time capsule into space, those stomps will be there. Like the actual sounds of
0: Richard Godderer's feet. I really hope so. Yeah. Cause <laughs> he's going to be so beloved by alien culture in the future. I'm sure that
2: they're going to be the first, he's going to be the first one they ask about.
0: Yes. <laughs> What's going on with Richard, Goddarder? Richard Goddarder.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it, it It's interesting because definitely on this song, You can hear the really nice, tight, but kind of like open and airy 60s influences to the production, but he does a really great job bringing the synth to the forefront. Definitely. I think that makes it sound very modern for the time, super new wavy.
2: Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. And it's um, not to compare it to parallel lines which was their next album the big hit and it was produced by mike chapman yeah um it's from, just so... from
0: 10cc just for people that don't know yeah
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah but you know it's just so funny that he famously said that when when they got in the studio you know they were the worst band he'd ever heard and you you know they had he had to be like an he called himself like a Hitler to get them to actually play their instruments well and all of that. And then you listen to this, which is, you know, clearly he was like, I need to improve from where they were here. You know, you get kind of like this loose, airy feeling in the production, but
0: also in like the way they're playing, which I think just it makes it so fun. Also, do you think that it really sounds particularly loose? They sound pretty tight to me on this record. What do you think about that?
2: yeah maybe just in comparison to parallel lines yes Um, which is
0: just like a masterpiece of precision playing for sure right
2: right so i guess yeah right i guess that's where my head was at just because i was thinking of like comparing those two but yeah no i would say especially like you know compared to like other you know new wave or punk groups yeah definitely i would not call it yeah i think you're right it's it's it could be looser (laughs)
0: <laughs> I would also argue, too, that Blondie's secret weapon is Clem Burke, their drummer, yeah. who's one of the best drummers in the biz and is a really tight, aggressive, and like very uh, fun, playful drummer as well. And I would argue that he doesn't quite get many chances to shine on this record. And hmm. that's quite different from Parallel Lines, where I feel sure. like it's very much Clem Burke's album.
2: Yeah, and there's a, there's a lot of variety in terms of like what the percussion is doing on that album.
0: Yeah, that is absolutely true. Yeah, and on this one, he's definitely back. I'd say he's backing up the keyboards and guitars on this sure. one specifically. Mm. So I think that next, actually, we should listen to uh, my, ch- my pick, Didn't Have the Nerve to Say No. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, this one's fun and super different from Denis, so let's give it a listen. was trying to pick between a few that would, were most representative of like the album tracks on mm. this album because Denny was a single yeah. and it, it went to number two in the UK so it did fairly well and this was a b-side to I think to Always Touched by Your Presence Dear which we're going to talk about next but I think is really indicative of this album's sound when they're not trying to go for that like 60s throwback sound Mm, Yeah, right. So this one was uh, mainly written by Debbie Harry. It was a Debbie uh, Harry-Destry collab song, the two of them together. And musically, I think that Jimmy Destry really goes pretty nuts with it,
1: (laughs) Uh, which I think is
0: is great. But then in terms of the way that the lyrics intersect with the music here, something I think is interesting about it is, like, this song, it's not that long, uh, but it goes into, like, a few different movements. It has a whole kind of end section to it that's different than the rest of the song
1: mm-hmm.
0: and really requires a few listens for you to get a hold of what's what's happening in the song. So the structure of it is is quite unique for a Blondie pop song. And once again, it's uh, their New York rock roots very much on display here mm-hmm. with this one. Yeah. And then, you know, the lyrics are about... You know a very toxic man that you know the singer debbie can 't quite stay away from, mm-hmm. but it 's all sort of very like obtuse and representational and poetic the entire song yeah and it 's just like it 's good writing and and it 's a really good way to get into that Debbie Harry herself was really quite an interesting songwriter and and definitely. It's not like this was a band where, like, oh well, the dudes wrote all the songs for the for the lady lead singer. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, no, no, no. And it's yeah, it's clearly so much specifically from her, and from a female perspective. I think it's like uniquely female perspective.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think that made it a really interesting song for the record. Uh, I read an interesting little mini review of this album from a guy who was a teenager in the UK when this came out. And he said that for him, this album was a road to sort of a pathway to like a sort of a like wonderfully seedy and exciting sexuality that like teenage Mm. boys hadn't been exposed to at the (laughs) time and were being exposed to through Debbie Harry and through the musical content of the album.
2: Yeah. I think that's a really interesting point, and maybe you could answer this a little bit more. I mean, how would you describe Debbie Harry's sexuality as it kind of, well, just in general, <laughs> and then like- uh, and Great, how it, i like, describe
0: it as great, Kyle. It's awesome, four stars, four stars out oh, of four. Yeah. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah she's hot.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, but like, I mean, her presence and her sexuality was so much, it, it was a part of the band, at least ostensibly. And I think she was definitely not – she was not afraid of her sexuality in, like, an empowering way, I think, genuinely. Yeah. Um, she kind of owned it. But I think a lot of it, too, is just marketing also. Like, you know, like – and they knew that. And mm-hmm. I think they they played with how much do we kind of play into it and how much do we – um. Yeah, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts about that?
0: Well, I think that it's really telling that they all were, and very follow me here, that they were really into Devo at the time. Mm -hmm. And there's some really great photos of Debbie with Devo backstage dressed in one of their outfits. You know, they, like she just couldn't wait to put on one of those yellow jumpsuits when (laughs) she was hanging out with them. And the reason why I bring it up is because I think that if you look at Blondie and a lot of these CBGB's bands that hit really well, there is a very strong visual element to them that were sort of the, they were the primordial version of what became like an MTV band. Right. Right. And I think that Blondie, if you look at the way that they're marketed on television and the fact that the men, for the most part in the band, all try to have a uniform look and then allow Debbie Harry to stand out, Uh That this was all quite calculated, and I think that it was primarily calculated by the band members, specifically Debbie, Harry, and Chris Stein, who I think are just like really smart marketers. Yeah. And the only reason why I don't attribute their record labels more to that is only because the Chrysalis just had sort of such a fraught relationship with Blondie. And they had Mm. been through a whole other record label before that as well, before they signed with EMI and ended up being able to sort of have a more proper relationship with their record label. Mm. You know, I think that it came a lot from them. And in terms of describing Debbie Harry's sexuality, to get back to that, I would say that she was really you know, a classic Hollywood beauty, she has claimed on numerous occasions that she very often fantasized growing up that she was Marilyn Monroe's lost child. Uh, Yeah, and and I think that she always wanted to embody that sort of star power, but... She was notably like a little older than the rest of the band. Yeah. They were all in when they formed, she was in her late 20s, they were in their early 20s. And by the time Parallel Lines came out, uh, and this album, by the time Plastic Letters and Parallel Lines came out, she was in her 30s, notably a little older, and I think had a really, had developed a really strong sense of self. Huh. Yeah, just by the time this this record came out. And I think it's why they were ready to take on this mantle of her, of being a band that had like a major, major, you know, female pop sex symbol in it. Yeah. Yeah. And then in terms of how it's represented on this album, this is sort of the last Blondie record, I would say, that, has ties to that like lovely sort of toddy and scuzzy New York '70s scene, definitely.
2: Yeah, and that things got we really... get a different New York on the next album, but it, yeah, but we a, get a, a we get
0: a big like fast car New York, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, an almost an almost yuppie ish New York on yeah. on parallel lines, and then in into my other favorite Blondie record, which is Eat to the Beat, we actually get like great american songbook sweeping working class new york they mm. write a lot sort of from that perspective but this perspective early on is a woman who knows she's sexy having to deal with a lot of sleazy bullshit dudes which yeah. ties us back to this song yeah yep yeah. i think that's that that's a really savvy observation oh thank you kyle yeah i hope that that answers your question about you know her her sexy observation thanks morning shock jock dj (laughs) that's great (laughs) yeah and then just want to say before we leave talking about this song definitely you know we're talking over it in the podcast but go back and listen to i'd say specifically the end of this song which has a killer good bass breakdown Mm. which i just love at the end of this and is like has a really good groove to it And shows that they were good, uh, that they were always a really tight dance band, even before Heart of Glass. Yeah, right. Yeah, and that kind of stuff.
2: Which we should mention, maybe you can say, um, and Mm -hmm. I hadn't actually heard it before, the demo version of Heart of Glass was recorded in these sessions.
1: That's
0: correct. Yeah, it was, I think, sort of near the tail end of these sessions. And they were really into disco and wanted to write a disco song. And initially, Heart of Glass was simply called the disco song (laughs) Mm because it was so alien to them in terms of the way that they wrote. Right. And then there's other demos of it. So you can hear the the original demo of Heart of Glass on the reissue of this album that came out in 2001 of Plastic Mm -hmm. Letters. And then there's other interesting demos of Heart of Glass on the Parallel Lines reissue as well. Mm. And if you're just a fan of music in general and of pop music, it's really one of the most well-documented songs in terms of being able to listen to its evolution, which is kind of fun. Yeah, That's
2: really cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It sort of is a good little lesson in how a song is written and how it changes from inception to recording and release. Uh, But let's talk about the last track, uh, which was the other single from this record, I'm Always Touched by Your Presence, Dear, which is a special one for me. So let's give it a little bit of a listen, and then we will talk about it.
1: Was it destiny? I don't know yet. Was it just by chance? Could this be his met? Something in.
0: This one before this listening this week? No, i would never cool. heard of it. Cool, interesting. Yeah, this is like one of the only ones, along with Denny, that's on like some greatest hits. Uh-huh. Uh huh. That's the reason why I'm asking. Uh, what do you think of this one?
2: I, I really like it. I think it's a very interesting it's It's a bit tough to place like you know what where quite where the influences are and and where they're kind of coming from. It's a really cool just like 70s catchy rock song and yeah, I, I don't know. I, I mean I kept it, it was a bit hard to put my finger on. it was really it's a really cool song and we could talk about the lyrics and that that's kind of funny but but just like musically, I thought it was
0: surprisingly unique. Yeah, I, I agree with that assessment of it. I think that it is very quintessentially Blondie in that it has a really sharp kind of late 70s, early 80s sound. But I, I would argue that you can hear some of that jangly 60s coming into this song. Like, this does sound like kind of a traditional love ballad to me or, or a love song, you know?
2: Yeah. And I think something maybe underrated that kind of achieves that because I definitely hear that as well. That is the tamp. There's like some tambourine Mm -hmm. um, that really puts you in uh, a bit of that. Like, yeah. Jangly poppy sixties, like pop sound.
0: Yeah. Jangly, definitely. Jangly tambourine and also some like really nice kind of twangy strummy guitar. As Mm -hmm, well, that does it also,
2: and uh, I think, like yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, totally. And uh, I think that Clem Burke said that he felt like this song was a precursor to a power ballad. Interesting, but I don't totally agree with that. I'm not really hearing the power ballad roots in this one. Not quite. Yeah, yeah. To be honest, yeah. uh, I, I to me, I hear it's definitely more of a love song. Now, this one was written by their, at the time, former bassist, Gary Valentine. And they kept it on the record because they really liked the song, genuinely. But by the time they recorded it, he had left. So he does not play on it.
2: I was about to ask, yeah. So
0: he, interesting. Yeah, he's not, he doesn't actually play on on the track. No, he doesn't play on the track. And he wrote their first hit, He wrote Ex Offender for Uh them. And I think that you can hear some similarities there. And I I do feel that Gary Valentine was writing in sort of a like throwback recontextualization of like a lot of 60s sounds with what he was doing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that's kind of an interesting aspect to the song. And then there's, I mean, let's get into it here. (laughs) The, the main thing about the song that's so fascinating is that it's definitely a genuine, very somewhat traditional love song, but is about two people that have a psychic connection.
2: <laughs> yeah, and everything I've read about it, and I think in the lyrics too, it's like, it's so, it seems so sincere, but in, in a way that's like, I don't know, like almost funny. Like, it's re- like when we, we play at cards, you use an extra sense, and then she says, she speaks like, it's really not cheating. I know. It's, <laughs> it's so charming. It's so like, cute.
0: <laughs> I agree. And and I feel that if it was taking itself more seriously, it would be a real bummer of a song, you know? Yeah. Like, that's the thing. I think that's what makes it work so well. But so, so I, when I say sincere... I
2: think he really believes that he has this power. I, I got the sense that he really, use like me and my girlfriend, when I go on tour, I can communicate with her, and, you know, because I woke up and we called each other and we had the same dream and, you know, all that stuff.
0: <laughs> well, he's, he's an interesting guy, Gary Valentine. And this gives me my excuse to talk about him because I, I love this guy. He's one uh-huh. of my favorite little rock and roll people around. <laughs> so he went to school, he went to high school with Clem Burke and that's how he ended up in Blondie. And all of them were sort of hanging out around, like, the whole New York Dolls scene in the early 70s. And they all were really into glam, like, you know, Clem Burke and Chris Stein and Gary Valentine. And Gary Valentine considered himself, uh, like, a hardcore glam rocker before they sort of segued into the the suit and tie new wave look for Blondie. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, and I think that it's a line that isn't often drawn, but one that should be drawn directly from like New York Dolls and Bowie and T-Rex to like The Sounds of Blondie, sort Uh of that that sheen and that like kind of like, you know, power, uh, like, you know, guitar power and like clear songwriting choices that all those bands make. Yeah. And he now is a primarily is a writer who writes about the occult. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> I'm sure you're shocked to hear this. And, and they were all interested in mysticism and the occult at the time, but he has a real gift of taking some very esoteric occult and Sort of un- un- strange mysteries, ideas, and putting them into an easy to understand pop song, which I really love about him. But in a very sort of distinct and sort of eccentric way. It's very eccentric, absolutely. You know, there's some really good lines and words in this song. I love that line levitating lovers in the secret stratosphere I'm <laughs> uh, always touched by your presence dear you know like, I don't feel that line could have literally come from anybody else in the world other than <laughs> yeah Gary Valentine and also like you know, I stay awake at night and catch your R.E.M.'s. That's about yeah, right, line. exactly. It's it's so written by a pop, like, it's written like a pop song, you know, catch your R.E.M.'s feels like a real, like, kind of teen bubblegummy pop line, but it's about, like, basically listening in on your girlfriend's dreams while she's asleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, which is so strange. So he wrote this because he, as you said, genuinely believed That he had a psychic connection to his girlfriend at the time, who is uh, Lisa Jane Persky. That's who he was dating at the time, who was a photojournalist who was involved in the whole CBGB scene. And then also is an actor who is still a working actor, actually, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And he claims that they had a sense of what each other were doing just for the entire time that they were apart from each other. And he also claims that sometimes it was really nice and sometimes it was actually like, Inconvenient and they didn't like it.
2: (laughs) He's like, "Oh, guys, I'm gonna have to catch up with you later. I have to like my
0: girlfriend's watching a movie and she wants me to to stick around." (laughs) Yeah, I I feel like you know, yeah, like she would be deep in thought. He'd be like, "I'm so distracted by my girlfriend's (laughs) thoughts." You know. (laughs)
1: So
0: yeah, it's it's um it's funny and and apparently they were you know calling each other up and sharing the same dreams. Yeah, which is great and you know super super fun and yeah he was really very strange and he's sort of a guy whose personality couldn't be contained by blondie right <laughs> and if you watch early blondie videos something that he was known for is that when they're all playing he's leaping the fuck around the stage <laughs>
1: <laughs> so
2: he's just a weirdo
0: I yeah love he's it. he's pogoing around he's like a cute he's a he's a cute young total weirdo so my type you know same old same old for me which is one of the th- reasons why i think i gravitate towards him and sure. he really was kicked out of the band that that's it's complicated and it's it's fun it's very funny as well so it's it's interesting they didn't like him leaping around they <laughs> kept reiterating him that debbie harry was supposed to be the focus this makes sense he he was not as marketable as Debbie Harry. He was like a tall, lanky, like curly-haired bassist man leaping, leaping around in a suit yep. and a tie. <sighs> and then he wasn't into the direction they were going musically as well. So it was somewhat amicable, and he claims that he quit the band at this time. And then in the 90s, when Blondie reformed, which was in 97, 98, after their hiatus of many years, they brought him back into the band. Mm. They actually recorded some demos of some of his songs with another project of his, which we'll get into, to perhaps appear on their album. He toured with them for a while, and then they decided, Debbie, Harry, and Chris Stein they decided that it was not working out and then Mm. they fired him from the band. Mm. So he's, he claims that he's, and he, he's has quite a good sense of humor about it. He claims that he's the only guy that ever quit a band and then was later fired from the same band, (laughs) which is kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. And this does go to the fact that I think that one of the strengths and one of the major weaknesses of Blondie is that it really is Chris and Debbie calling the shots. They consider it Uh their project. And when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the original members were inducted, including Gary Valentine. However debbie harry and christine did not allow them to play on stage for their induction they played with the modern version of blondie which is still touring and recording interesting yeah not the original version of the band which was quite a contentious issue for both the former band members and the fans it was sort of Mm. a, a difficult thing to happen that has never been resolved which kind of sucks. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> but I like that Gary has his stamp on this album and it's a good stamp and it's still a song that Blondie will play live and is known to be one of their big, well-known hit songs at this point. But mm. it's very weird. I completely agree with you. and weird, <laughs> yeah. But weird in a really fun way, I think. Yeah, totally. And catchy. Like not to say it's, you know, it's... Definitely accessible. Yeah, it's very accessible. And then, like, the last question I have for you about this one is, I'm wondering, like, do you feel that it's romantic, like, despite its eccentricities? Definitely, Uh, even more, I think it's even more romantic
2: because of its eccentricities, because that's what, I mean, is romantic to me in that it's so specific. What could be more romantic than that?
0: That is true. Yeah, it's so much about their relationship,
2: right? If it was like "I love you, baby," dooby dooby doo, and don't get me wrong, we love that kind of thing. Yes, but uh, in terms of you know, on the uh, on the romantic scale, I think if 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 you're talking about you know specifically you know, your shared theosophies. <laughs> I was
0: going to bring up that word. I had to look it up just I to don't make even sure. know
2: what it means.
0: <laughs> I'm really, like, relieved to hear that you don't know what it means because it, it's very rare that, at least with this genre of music that I'm super into, this sort of New York rock, late 70s, the punk, new wave stuff, it's very rare that I have to look up words used in the songs. <laughs> yeah, very true. And uh so yeah, so theosophies is a real word and right. it's basically discussing obscure theological philosophies. That's right. that's what it means. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs>
2: yeah, as a as not the most spiritual guy in the world. Um, sure that that's not probably not a word that's come across my uh, desk before but um yeah, <laughs> yeah I, and probably the only time it's this is probably the biggest hit song with the word theosophy
0: in it it's probably the only hit song with <laughs> the word theosophy in it <laughs> yeah 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 which gives it a real <laughs> distinction yeah right <laughs> but no i think you're right like it is. It's, it's It is. It's the most romantic song ever written about two people that are psychically linked. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so just to close out this discussion about Plastic Letters, I would love to ask you, who would you recommend this album for? Who do you think would be into this one? Interesting. Like, what type of person do you think would enjoy this album? <laughs> I mean, like, let's say people who have a specific type of music taste, if someone was like, oh, I like this, this, and this, you would be like, oh, yeah, listen to Plastic Letters. That's an interesting Blondie record.
1: Yeah,
2: I mean, not to beat a dead horse, but I think this could be a nice transition record for people who maybe like more, like, Power Pop.
0: Yeah, uh, I agree. To kind of
2: send them into a more of a new wave or like, you know, New York punk, you know, CBGB's direction. Um, I think this is a good bridge album for that. Because it's not a, I wouldn't call it a power pop album.
1: No, Um, it it has power pop elements. Yeah. yeah,
2: But I think that would be kind of, I think this would be a cool bridge bridge album for people who like that stuff.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I think that like definitely Cheap Trick fans, big star fans as well. I yep. think would get into this record and then i feel people who are like slightly more esoteric rock as well yeah would like this record you know like i do feel like this would hit television fans in a really in a really good place as well maybe more so than other blondie records yeah definitely definitely oh awesome well we're gonna end this podcast today by recommending some stuff if you enjoyed listening to plastic letters you know what what could we recommend next what could you follow up with what do you think kyle
2: so along those lines the last question was a good segue so if you're a fan of blondie or you liked this album and you know a little bit of blondie you must know probably know the song the tide is high the blondie did the first kind of big cover of it and then i think it appeared in a hillary duff movie you know 15 Did years it? ago. Yeah. <laughs> not the Blondie version. I think it was like a cover of their sure. version. Yeah. But, you know, I love Jamaican music. We've talked about Jamaican music on this podcast and specifically like early sixties, sort of what we call rock steady or early ska. So their Blondie's version of Pad is High is actually a cover of the song by the Paragons and they're comes from their album on the beach which is probably my favorite like early 60s rock steady early jamaican kind of pop music album so i have to recommend the paragons version of the tide is high which is the original version and their album
0: on the beach awesome that's lovely yeah and a great album sort of for this end of summer we're experiencing right now. definitely yeah it'll be a good
2: you can cry um you can listen to the album and cry about how summer is ending i know i will Yes,
0: how, you know, we're we're so far into this weird pandemic and we almost had a summer and now it's over.
2: Yeah, I will... uh, The pandemic is one thing, but a pandemic with no summer, I don't know if I can handle it.
0: Yeah, seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'd like to recommend, and this is a little hard to find, but it's all available on YouTube. All of Gary Valentine's recordings that have been released he had a solo project after he left Blondie that's called The No, which are a wonderful, herky-jerky, new wave power pop band. Mm. And he has a really good cover of I'm Always Touched by Your Presence Dear. Oh, cool. And then, yeah, which is excellent. And then he also did a song that Blondie demoed, and you can hear the Blondie demo of it, but was never released that I think he does a wonderful job with that he wrote that's called Scenery, which Mm. I also would recommend, and then some other like big anthemic songwriting songs, including one called Tomorrow Belongs to You, Mm. and another one that's called I Like Girls, and I think these are (laughs) really great sort of fun, new wavy power pop songs, and he's never gotten the recognition he deserves for just being an awesome an awesome, uh, (laughs) songwriter of the era. Super, super fun stuff. Uh, and then just for fun for you and all of our listeners, are you ready to hear the hot Seymour Stein gossip? Oh yes. I almost forgot. I I failed you. No, no, no. You're quite all right. That's why I took a note of it so that we wouldn't leave (laughs) our listeners hanging. So I just finished a part of the book and I was so shocked by this that I was thinking of texting you and I was like, I'm going to save it for the podcast. Oh, amazing. So, Seymour Stein, and I didn't know this until reading the book, founder of Sire Records, during his most of his rock and roll career, was this poor married dude who was in the closet and then sleeping with guys on the side, Hmm. which I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. And, At the time, you know, his wife, Linda Stein, was managing the Ramones. Mm, Yeah. And there is a story in the book where Linda goes off to the airport to go on a flight somewhere. And literally 10 minutes after she left, because he knew he'd be alone, Dee Dee Ramone showed up at Seymour Stein's door. Of course you knew this. (laughs) Proceeded to go inside, pour himself a drink, and then take off all his clothes and attempt to seduce Seymour Stein. Wow.
2: Yes. Oh. <laughs> I, as soon as you... Uh, yeah, yeah. That I know. is I, incredible. My,
0: my jaw was open on the floor <laughs> reading this. I was like, what? <laughs> I, I can't believe this. And Seymour Stein turned him down.
2: Poor Seymour.
0: No, poor Didi. He turned <laughs> Didi down. But oh, but I guess he was sleeping with
2: guys at the time. So it wasn't like him like withholding urges. It was No, like a- it
0: wasn't him withholding urges. It was apparently that Seymour liked his men more manly. Oh. and Dee Dee was being too passive
1: wow. for him. Oh. And it
0: was and it not it wasn't a term on a turn on for Seymour. So Seymour made an excuse and that he had a phone call and was like oh my god dd Dee Dee, there's something wrong and linda's coming back right away you have to leave
2: oh my god and dd
0: put on his clothes and left and that was the end of that between the two of them what isn't that uh, great? Is that story. a great story? <laughs> yes, incredible. So poor D.D. He just wanted some love from Seymour, but it just didn't uh, happen for him. Also, it's so funny. I'm looking
2: back at pictures of old Seymour Stein, and he's such a funny. <laughs> like he like, as two Jews here, we can recognize. Um, yes, he a is big a Jew pro,
0: and uh, yes, he is yeah. definitely a New York music industry Jew. Yeah, <laughs> the likes of which both of us very much aspire to be. <laughs> uh, big time. And on that note, what a lovely conversation going, you know, traveling back into the seventies with Blondie. Yeah. Yeah. Super, super fun. As always, Kyle, super pleasure.
2: Yes. Thank you for bringing this album among many others to my attention.
0: (laughs) Anytime my, my friend, absolutely. (laughs) So this has been Kick the Jukebox. If you have enjoyed listening, once again, we would love for you to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's super helpful for us. And you can follow us on all social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We are there. We're not on TikTok. Maybe we should get on TikTok. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Maybe that's that's the new place for us. TikTok album reviews. Yeah, TikTok. I'm sure they exist. Absolutely. <laughs> also, we are now on anchor.fm. So you go to far, if you go to our anchor page you can leave a audio message for us and we can respond and shout out to via Instagram. Uh, your friend Josh got in touch with us this week oh, and yeah. really enjoyed our conversation about love, the band love. So we appreciate you listening and thanks for reaching out, Josh. We love it. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, for another episode of kick the Box, I'm Louie Pearlman And I'm Kyle Gordon. See you around like a record. all
1: the time.